0: Today on the show, we're going to talk about Stanley Baker and Lawrence Bittaker. You're listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. Bad in the Boondocks, Bad in the Boondocks, People put it down, but what you're supposed to do in a small town, Bad in Bad in the boondocks. Lord have can in the boondocks. Hey and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Stan. And I'm Drew. And we're so glad you're here as always. Yep. Um, remember please go and um make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Um wouldn't want you feeling bad in the boondocks. <laughs> also, um, rate and review us. Tell a friend. Um, shoot us a message. Tell us something that we need to do differently. Also, visit our Patreon page. Yes. Join one of our three tiers. Keep this show independent. No ads. I hate ads. I'm sure you do, too. The way we can keep it that way is, though, is from y'all's patronage. Patronage, (laughs) yeah. Patronage. Um, On today's show, we're going a little different route. I decided our little number one fans from California were going to do a show based in California this week. Yep. And I went one step further, and I'm going to do my own name. Stanley Baker. Baker. (laughs) So... Uh, it should be interesting. I think yes. it's Jeru's time to go first. Yep. Yep. All right, you ready? I'm ready. All right, you ready? I was born ready. <laughs> and I think you just asked if I was ready, and I said, I am ready.
1: Oh, whatever. And then you said, are All you right, ready? All right, well, um, Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker. see what I'm doing. He was right. born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 27th. 1940. Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker adopted the infant, who would be known as Lawrence shortly after he was born. George's work in aircraft factories occasioned frequent moves for the family, from Pennsylvania to Florida, then to Ohio, and finally California. Something of that rootless childhood stuck with Lawrence, and he dropped out of school in 1957, after several brushes with police and juvenile authorities
0: what grade was he in um i'm not sure oh when was he but,
1: born but um 1940 uh, this was 1957 yes so
0: he was 17 so he was probably junior or senior
1: yeah um but soon after dropping out of high school Bittiker was arrested in Long Beach for auto theft hit and run and evading arrest that bust earned him a trip to the California Youth Authority where he remained until he turned 19. Within days of his California parole, Biddicker was picked up by FBI agents in Louisiana charging him with violating the Interstate Motor Vehicle Theft Act.
0: Hmm, that's a tough one. That's a long one. That's a long one. That's, long one. that's what she said. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Convicting uh, <laughs> on that charge in August 1959, he was sentenced to serve 18 months at a federal reformatory in Oklahoma. His behavior there soon earned Bitteker a transfer to the U.S. Medical Center at Springfield, Missouri, where doctors released him after he served two-thirds of his sentence.
0: And a side note. We live in Springfield.
1: Yeah, so isn't that great? South Carolina. Isn't that great? Arrested next for a Los Angeles robbery (laughs) in December 1960. Biddicker was convicted in May 1961, slapped with an indeterminate sentence of 1 to 15 years in state prison.
0: That's what a slap sounds like.
1: Nah. I'm sure that everybody knows what a slap sounds like a 1961 psychiatric examination found bitaker to be manipulative and having considerable concealed hostility concealed hostility despite superior intelligence he was diagnosed as a borderline psychotic and basically paranoid the following year a second psychiatrist noted Bittaker's poor control of impulsive behavior. These diagnoses, notwithstanding, he was paroled in late 1963 after serving barely one-sixth of his possible maximum sentence.
0: So, I mean, it's refreshing that with all of these diagnoses Mm -hmm. that he was able to, I mean, why not let him out? Because. Um, This is probably the end. He doesn't do anything else bad, right? He, like, works for the Red Cross. What? I mean, after this stint in jail or whatever, he's going to work for the Red Cross, right? He's not going to do anything else bad.
1: No. Yes, he is. Oh. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Freedom Freedom never seemed to agree with Larry Bittaker. Two months after his... Conditional release, he was jailed again for parole violation and suspicion of robbery.
0: Did it state the conditions for the parole? That said conditional.
1: Um, sure. No, it did really not. Did no, it up. did not. Oh, okay. No, it did not. Okay, I'm okay. sorry. I'm hush. Another parole violation sent him back to prison in October 1964. For two weeks. How do you... No. Be quiet. No, it's not. Okay, interviewed... By a psychiatrist in 1966, Bitteker confessed that stealing made him feel important, then curiously added that his crime occurred under circumstances that were not totally my fault. That's what he said. Another diagnosis of borderline psychosis was recorded, and authorities released him yet again. That's only, what you did, see? That's
0: what
1: only I mean. to have, again, see another parole violation in June 1967. Wow. One month later, Bitteker was tagged for Are you theft. okay? Well, my eye's like watering it's really. Like,
0: kind of, what?
1: It's watering a lot. I mean, because you're,
0: I don't know. You look like one out of really. <laughs> All
1: right, I think I'm, I think I'm all right. But, um. One month later, Bittaker was tagged for theft and leaving the scene of a hit-and-run accident. Convicted on those charges, he drew another five-year sentence, but he was paroled after serving less than three years in April 1970. Arrested for burglary and parole violation in March 1971, he was convicted on both counts that October receiving an additional sentence of six months to 15 years.
0: Now that is a joke.
1: Yes, it is. But the California prison system at the time was in such disarray that it was hardly surprised that Bittaker was freed three years later in 1974. His, cr- his next crime began as simply shoplifting, shoving a stake down the front of his pants. Oh and so he was he, he was it. packing oh, then. He was packing
0: he was packing, but he was also marinating and seasoning. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a steak rub?
1: Yep, that's Sue yeah. <laughs> Should've got pork. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um he shoved it down his pants in the supermarket, like most places but it escalated to attempted murder in the parking lot when Bittaker stabbed an employee who tried to stop him.
0: Jesus, that, that escalated.
1: Yep. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Robert Markman examined Bittaker before trial and rejected the earlier findings of borderline psychosis. He branded Bittaker a classic sociopath. So full on. In short, he was a hopeless case beyond any known treatment or rehabilitation. Dr. Markman also warned that Bitteker was bound to escalate his criminal behavior, moving on to more serious crimes. He was a highly dangerous man with no internal... <laughs> you want to know what I'm just sorry. happened?
0: I'm sorry.
1: He just let a wheelie out. I passed gas. <laughs> Oh, my God. Keep it over there, please. Good Lord. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Anyways, anyways. He was, and I quote, a highly dangerous man with no internal controls over his impulses. A man who could kill without hesitation or remorse. Bitteker later reinforced this surmise, telling a cellmate, that, somebody, that someday he planned to be bigger than the Manson.
0: Marilyn Manson or Charles Manson?
1: Charles Manson. Prison psychiatrist concurred with Markman. A 1977 jailhouse evaluation found Bittaker more than likely to commit new crimes upon his release. A year later, in July 1978, another psychiatrist dubbed Bittaker a, so- a self a sophisticated so-
0: psychopath. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> a, sophistic-
1: <Let's> <laughs> a sophisticated psychopath. Oh,
0: okay. And what is a sophisticated
1: psychopath? He's a smart psychopath. Oh. Yeah. His prospects for successful parole were guarded at best. Again, the warnings were ignored, and Bitteker was released in November 1978. But not before he had made. A special friend, As, yeah, what kind? his name was Roy Lewis Norris. He was born in Greasley, Colorado. <laughs> Greasley, like Greasley. Greasley, yeah, Greasley. Uh, no, Greeley. <laughs> oh, it's oh Gre- so it has no S? <laughs> no, it's oh, Greeley. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just seeing, I was seeing if you catch it. Oh, no, I I, no, it really wasn't. <laughs> um. On February 2nd, 1948. Unlike Bittaker, Norris lived in his hometown until he was 17 when he dropped out of school and joined the Navy. He was stationed in San Diego, but in 1969, Norris spent four months in Vietnam. Norris never saw combat, but he did see drugs. Marijuana was his drug of choice.
0: All oh, that wacky weed
1: because it was widely available. Back in Southern California by November 1969, Norris attacked a female driver in downtown San Diego. He forced his way into her car and attempted to rape. It only, it only took three months for Norris to get arrested again. Free on bail, pending trial for attacking the motorist, Norris knocked out another San Diego woman's door. <laughs> He knocked, he knocked down a San Diego woman's door. He asked if he could use her telephone. When the woman refused, he tried to break in through a living room window, then ran back to the kitchen, breaching a window there. He finally entered the house, but police arrived before he could harm his attended victim.
0: That was a lot of work for nothing.
1: I know it was. At that point, the Navy had seen enough of Norris. He received an administrative charge, discharge for psychological problems after he was diagnosed as having a severe schizoid personality. Still waiting disposition on his previous assault cases, Norris attacked a young woman in May 1970 on the campus of San Diego State College. He tackled the student from behind, clubbed her with a stone, then slammed her head repeatedly into a concrete sidewalk. Ow. Yeah. This time, the charge was assault with a deadly weapon, and it was finally enough to take Roy Norris off the streets. He was confined to Atascadero State Hospital as a mentally disordered sex offender. He spent five years there before being released on probation, Officially, he was described as someone who would bring no further danger to others. Norris proved the prediction wrong three months later in Redondo Beach. Cruising the streets on a motorcycle, he spied a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant after a quarrel with her boyfriend. Norris stopped to offer her a ride, which she declined. Yeah, um, I just
0: wouldn't jump on a no, motorcycle. With no, but not. It's one thing, like in a car, but on a motorcycle, I don't know how they drive. Yeah, it. I know.
1: Well, undeterred by the rejection, Norris leaped off his bike and attacked the woman, strangling her into semi-consciousness with her own scarf.
0: Right off the street?
1: Yep. Dazed, she did not resist as Norris dragged her behind a nearby hedge and raped her.
0: Wow. Yeah
1: nearby hedge.
0: Uh, a bush.
1: Yeah, I know. I know what a hedge oh. <laughs> is. <laughs> but I'm just saying, isn't that odd? Yeah. It's just behind a little hedge. I mean, hedge. that's
0: very risk. Risqué.
1: Yep.
0: yep. licious, if you want to
1: get okay. okay. down with it. Okay. Like y'all cool kids Get say. down on it. Da-da-da. Is that how it goes? No, go shut up. <laughs> Police were unable to act because of her vague description of her attacker. But one month later, the woman saw Norris again. She memorized his license number. Convicted of forcible rape, Norris was shipped to the California Men's Colony at San Luis Obispo. Oh, I'm Obispo. Sure that was wrong. Sorry, Californians. It's, it's, it's Obispo. Okay, I'm sorry. I told you. I'm sorry. Well, it could have been worse. The colony is easy time as California prisoners go a cakewalk compared to Soledad, Folsom, or San Quentin. Those are prisons, by the way. Norris also met a friend at the colony who would change his life. Who was it? Bitteker? I will get to that. Reminiscing years later, Norris would claim that Larry Bitteker... I was right. Twice saved his life at San Luis Obispo. The experience bound him to Bideker, although the details are vague. The prison code demanded that Norris follow any plan Bideker devised, no matter how bizarre. It helped, of course, that they share near-identical fantasies of domination, rape, and torture. Next time a woman fell into his clutches, Bitteker confided he would kill her afterwards. A surefire method of evading punishment. In fact, he thought it might be fun to play a game, selecting one victim for each teen year, 13 through 19, and to see how long each victim could keep kept alive and screaming. Bitteker was paroled on... November 15th, 1978, returning to Los Angeles, where he found work as a machinist. Norris was freed exactly two months later on January 15th, 1979. He moved in with his mother at an L.A. trailer park. No disrespect. No disrespect, but... And used his Navy training to find work as an electrician. Peter wrote to Norris in February 1979 and arranged a arranged basic a rendezvous at a cheap downtown hotel. Oh, over drinks they renewed their prison friendship and repeated their dark desires. Mm. As a first step towards fulfilling his vision, Bittaker purchased a silver 1977 GMC cargo van. The van had its advantages. There were no side windows to worry about, and there was a large sliding door on the passenger side. So pretty much rapist serial killer van. Yes, very much. If their intended victim spurned the offer of a ride, Bittaker reasoned, Reasoned, they could pull up real close and not have to open the doors all the way. Just a tiny crack. To snatch some from the sidewalk. Just a little crack. Yeah. Well, Larry named the van Murder Mac. Oh,
0: Murder Mac.
1: (laughs) From February to June 1979, Bitteker and Norris cruised up and down the Pacific Coast Highway.
0: I would have named it Murdermobile.
1: I mean, Murder Mac is pretty good, though.
0: Return of the Mac, you know.
1: But I would have named it Murdermobile. That's a little, that's pretty good, though.
0: I know Murdermobile. That's a that's a good well, one. Why don't you take a step in my murder? Oh my gosh!
1: Whatever. They stopped at beaches, Baby. flirting with girls, and often took their photos. Get
0: in my Murdermobile! <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, dude.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Norris later estimated that they picked up twenty prospects without harming one.
0: Wow, so they really were looking for a specific type?
1: I think they were. And his estimate and his estimate may have been low. Detectives later counted some five hundred photos of smiling young women among Bittaker's belongings. Most were never identified.
0: Five hundred?
1: Yeah. Just like that they stopped, took pictures and I guess yeah, saying, I guess like, saw if they were like worthy. But if they stopped.
0: Like how many times are you gonna be like if somebody stops be like stop let me take your picture and you just be like okay you're murder know. Mac I don't know I'm the not, murder I Mac, would now the not. more wait the more I'm saying it listening murder the murder Mac, Mac does not sound that great no nope. it vehicle, sounds dorky for a vehicle
1: to be honest murder Mac I mean that's I don't like know. a Big Mac yeah I don't know maybe they were hungry. Shut up. You just said Big Mac. And you'll be there all night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they were test runs, Norris later explained. The rape and murder could wait until they found the perfect isolated spot to take their victims. Up on a hill, I bet. I don't know yet. Sometime in late April, cruising aimlessly, the hunters found a remote fire road in San Gabriel Mountains overlooking Glendora. A padlocked gate bared across but Bitteker smashed the lock with a crowbar and now they were in. Now all that they needed was just a girl and they found her on June 24th 1979. Bitteker would later tell police that the day started innocently enough. He spent the night in Murdermack parked along side the trailer Roy Norris shared with his mother. They spent the morning working on a bed Bideker had constructed in the back of the van. The bed was mounted on a frame with space beneath it to conceal a body. At about 11 a.m. they began prowling. Bideker described it as a nice day, nice Sunday to cruise around the beach area drinking beer, smoking grass, and flirting with the girls, we had no set routine. Now I'm assuming that they're not speaking of normal grass. No duh.
0: Probably oh, so it's the wacky probably people.
1: mirror what you want. Uh, uh. They made the rounds driving north and hitting all the stops between Redondo Beach and San Santa Monica. That would hurt.
0: Have you ever hit a stop sign with your hand?
1: No. Have I ever hit a stop sign?
0: Oh, I thought you said hit the stop.
1: No, shut. Up. <laughs> shut I'm up. here all night too. <laughs> Great. You're slowing up, the update There. No, I knew what you were talking about. I mean, I don't know what you, you just did. didn't make any sense to me. But whatever. Sometimes they part the van and scout a stretch of sand on foot. It was 5 p.m. back in Redondo Beach when they found a likely target. She took them both completely by surprise. Oh. Whitaker Norris later quarreled over who was first to notice 16-year-old Cindy Schaefer. Each man accused the other of pointing her out and suggested that she be the first contestant in their game. Ironically, she was not at the beach or wearing a swimsuit. In fact, Schaefer was walking back to her grandmother's house after a Christian youth meeting. At Saint Andrews Presbyterian Church. Oh, oh my no. gosh! What a poor little, poor, little thing. Murder Mac pulled alongside, and Norris offered her a ride. Shafer like no, thank you. Well, Schaefer declined and ignored the van as it trailed behind her. Then the van surged ahead and swung into a driveway, motor idling. And so that's where you take yourself back to Mr. Presbyterian Church. Yes, Norris met her on the sidewalk, smiling, repeated and repeating his offer. As Schaefer brushed past him, Roy grabbed her and muscled her into the van. The sliding door worked perfectly, muffling her cries for help as Biddicker cranked up the radiator, the radio's volume. <laughs> I said radiators. Hey, that radiator hey, up. hey, you can have a loud radiator You can't, you can't have it Just it ask us. Just ask us. Good Lord. Um, Norris grappled with Schaefer and then sealed her lips with duct tape. He also bound her wrists and ankles. One shoe was left behind on the sidewalk as Murder Mac sped away. In his prison pen memoirs, Bittaker later recalled that Throughout the whole experience, Cindy displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions and facts over which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming.
0: So that's... What a sophisticated psychopath sounds like.
1: That sounded really good, I think. I also liked
0: your little joke at the end.
1: She knew what was coming. But I didn't even... That was not a joke. (laughs) Or perhaps Bitteker simply lied. Who knows? He drove to the mountain fire road and parked out of sight from the highway. The men smoked grass. Not real grass. Okay and questioned Schaefer about her family until they grew tired of the routine and ordered her back and ordered her to strip. Biddaker left the van for an hour or so, giving Norris some privacy. He then he came back to take his turn, in custody, months later, each accused the other of insisting that Schaefer die. Norris first tried to s- strangle Schaefer, but he bungled the job. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he
0: screwed it up. He, wasn't he screwed the, the
1: job up, yeah. He, he bungled it. He left to vomit in the weeds. Yeah, so. He, when he returned, Norris said Bittaker was choking Schaefer, but her body was still jerking, alive to some degree, breathing or trying to breathe. Insane. I'm kidding. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Whitaker then handed Norris a wire a wire coat hanger, and they twisted it around her neck. That would really hurt. I know it would. Tightening the makeshift garrote with, right. with vice grip pliers, Norris recalled that Schaefer convulsed for 15 seconds or so, and that was it. She just died. Wrapping her body in plastic... When in a plastic shower curtain, Bittaker and Norris drove back along the fire road until they found a deep canyon.
0: And you know they stole that shower curtain from the mama's trailer. Yep. She tried to take a shower. And yep, got no shower yep ain't got
1: no shower curtain. All exposed. They lifted Schaefer's body from the van and heaved her into the chasm. Bittaker said the desert scavengers would clean up after them. It had been nearly perfect, the exhausting friends agreed, but there was something missing. Next time, they would keep a trophy of the hunt. Bittaker and Norris went hunting again on Sunday, July 8, 1979. In early afternoon, they saw a likely prospect thumbing rides along Pacific Coast Highway. But the driver of a white convertible pulled in ahead of them. Oh, you know that go, murder Mac or convertible? Which one would exactly. you choose? <laughs> and plucked her from the roadside. Norris grumbled over their bad luck, but Bitterer counseled patience. They would follow the convertible for a while and see where the hitchhiker was dropped off. Their patience was soon rewarded. The convertible driver signaled for an exit ramp ahead, braking first to deposit his passenger on the berm. She stuck a thumb out, waiting for the next ride. Meanwhile, Norris left Murder Mac's passenger seat and threw himself under the raised bed in the back. It was a change in strategy, to make the van appear less threatening. It worked. Andrea Hall was 18 and thankful for the ride, she introduced herself to Bitaker as he pulled back into traffic, gratefully accepting his offer to, of a cold drink. Hall went to fetch it from the cooler in the rear of the van, choosing a soda and turning back towards her seat. Norris lunged from hiding them and swept her legs out from under her. More, gra- more grappling on the floor of Murder Mac more blaring music from the radio as Bitteker drove on. Hall fought for her life, but Bitteker was too strong. She twi- he twisted an arm behind her back until she finally surrendered. The submission enabled Norris to bind her ankles and wrists and cover her mouth with tape. The fire wo- road was familiar territory now, there was no time for small talk with their second victim. They repeatedly raped her by turns. When both of them were tired, Bittaker loaded his Polaroid camera, dragged Hall from the van, and sent Norris on a bear hunt. On a beer hunt. <laughs> Not on a bear hunt, on a beer hunt. Down the mountain to a small roadside convenience store. When Norris returned, he found Bittaker alone, smiling over photos of Andrea Hall. Her face contorted by fear. He told me that he told her he was going to kill her, Norris later informed police. He wanted to see what her argument would be for staying alive. He said that she didn't put up much of an argument. Biddicher told Norris that he stabbed, he had stabbed Hall twice with an ice pick once in each ear. But he had to strangle her when she refused to die. When the murder was finished, Bitteker said he had pitched her off of a cliff. Bitteker and Norris made their third foray on Labor Day, September 3rd, cruising through Hermosa Beach. They spotted two girls seated on the beach at a bus stop where Peerview met Pacific Coast Highway. 15-year-old Jackie Gillum and 13-year-old Lee Lamp were waiting for, I don't know what kind of names those are, they um, weren't waiting for the bus, but they seemed happy to accept a ride with no special destination in mind. Bittaker and Norris later told police the girls were also glad to accept Larry's offer to smoke a joint. Lighting up, he passed the joint around and told his passengers that he was heading for the beach. Jackie and Lee challenged him moments later as Bittaker turned away from the ocean and started driving northward, but he stalled them with excuses, claiming he merely wanted to find a safe place to park while they got high. The girls protested when Bittaker parked near a suburban tennis court, Lee started to open the door, but Norris was faster, swinging a sawed-off baseball bat against her skull. A fierce struggle ensued. Whitaker waded in to help Norris, finally subduing the teenagers, trussing them with duct tape. Only when they were secured and silenced did he notice several tennis players watching them from the nearby courts. Worried that someone might call the police, Spittaker gunned the van and sped away towards his hideout in the San Gabriel Mountains.
0: I think you mean murder Mac.
1: Yes. But no one called the police. The witnesses returned to their game of tennis, dismissing the strange incident. Bittaker and Norris kept their latest hostages alive for nearly two days. They kept an audio tape of their rape and torture. Among other things, the tape captured Norris raping Jackie Gillum, demanding that she play a role of a cousin who was the object of someone of his sexual fantasies. Tired of the Game and running dangerously late for work, Bittaker repeated his trick with the ice pick, stabbing him in both ears, as with Andrea Hall. It he made her scream, but failed to kill her, so the rapists took turns strangling Jackie to death. Afterward, they turned on, on Lamp, Bittaker squeezing her throat while Norris pounded her neck, head, seven times with a sledgehammer. They pinched their victims off they pitched their victims off of a cliff with the ice pick still embedded in Jackie Gillum's skull. On Sunday, september thirtieth, they selected what are you doing? I'm
0: trying not to talk.
1: Gosh. They selected Shirley <laughs> Sanders on Aragon resident visiting her father in Manhattan Beach. When she declined a lift in Myrtle Mac, they sprayed Sanders with chemical mace and dragged her kicking from the sidewalk. Both men raped her in the van, but they were still but they were careless and she escaped. Sanders reported the assault, but she could not identify her assailants. She did not remember the license plate, unable to pursue the matter further. She returned to Aragon. The next month was nerve-wracking for Bittaker and Norris, worried that police might come for them at any moment. Bittaker was found a new apartment in Burbank, while Norris remained with his mother. The killers began to relax as the weeks passed by without any signs of the police. The pair went hunting again on Halloween night, deviating from their beach routine to prowl the residential streets of the Sunland and to Tijunga, her residence um, district in the San Fernando Valley. They spotted 16 year old Lynette Ledford hitchhiking and offered her a ride. She happily accepted, and within five minutes, Norris wrestled her to murder Max Floor. Biddecker chose not to waste time driving to the mountains. They could rape and torture Ledford just as well. He reasoned while they drove around the suburbs of Los Angeles. Norris took the driver's seat while Bitteker turned on the tape recorder and went to work on the captive. The tape records with um, him slapping her, demanding, Say something, girl. What do you want me to say? She responds. The slapping continues. Interspersed with cries of pain, frustrated, Bitteker asks Ledford, you can scream louder than that, can't you? Ledifer tries to accommodate him, but Bideker wants more. Soon he goes to work with vice grip pliers. Scream, baby, he urges. Next, Morris's voice is heard. Make noise there, there girl, he orders. Go ahead and scream, and I'll make your scream. I'll scream if you stop hitting me, Ledford sobs, when Norris starts striking her elbow with a hammer. Norris swings the hammer 25 times while he chants mindlessly, Keep it up, girl, keep it up. Scream till I say stop. Bittaker parked the van and prepared for the kill. I got a section of coat hanger, he later told police, and wrapped it around her throat and tied it up with the pliers. And Bolden. They thought it would be amusing to see what happened if they dumped their victim on someone's front lawn. They chose a yard at random in Hermosa Beach and loaded Ledford's corpse into a bed of ivy. The corpse was discovered the next morning. The find shocked Los Angeles. Since it came only days after the arrest of the hillside strangler, Angela, Angelo, Angelo. Angelo Brownie. Bruno. Bueno. Bueno, I think it bueno? is. Bueno. Yeah. The police said that they were unaware of any other Breno <clears throat> victims. They were missing girls and women on the books, of course. But who could say if they were dead? More to the point, how could police identify the killers in the latest unsolved case? In a sense, Lynette Ledford spoiled the fun. She was the, se- she was the second 16-year-old Bitaker and Norris had murdered, leaving three teen- teenagers unaccounted for. The hunters did not worry, though. From where they sat, it seemed as if they had all the time in the world, but they were mistaken. Roy Norris himself was part of the problem despite the murders game. the murder game shortcomings. Norris enjoyed it too much that he simply couldn't keep quiet. By October 1979, he had started bragging to other friend, for, to another friend, from prison. Jimmy Dalton, emphasizing his role as a criminal mastermind, Dalton thought it was all talk until Leffer's body was found. He called his lawyer, and they both went to Los Angeles Police, L.A.'s finest. Listened to Dalton's story, then passed them to detectives in Hermosa Beach, where Ledford's corpse had been discarded. Hermosa Beach detective Paul Benham headed the Ledford investigation. He had no forensic evidence to support a charge in the Ledford's slaying, but Dalton's mention of a silver van rang a bell in Benham's memory. He dispatched an officer to Oregon to interview Shirley Sanders, who was attacked one month before. Photographs were preferred for Sanders to examine. Leafing through the stack, she picked out Bittaker and Norris as the men who kidnapped and raped her. Benham approached Deputy District Attorney Steve Kay, who had prosecuted Norris on his previous rape charge in Redonda Beach. Kay cautioned Patience even though a quick arrest would halt the murder spree they need time to build a strong case police mounted surveillance on the pair once again norris was the le- weak link he was seen selling mar- marijuana on the street police made their move 2 days before thanksgiving in 1979 they arrested norris for parole violation on the mar- marijuana charge while Bitteker was jailed on suspicion of kidnapping and raping Shirley Sanders. Norris waved his right to counsel and sparred with the interrogators for a while. Eventually, he crumbled, casting himself as a reluctant accomplice to murders planned and carried out by Bitteker. The prison code demanded that he go along for the ride, Norris insisted. Insi- ins- after all, he owed Bittaker his life, but apparently not his silence. On the strength of Norris's confession, both men were charged for five counts of first-degree murder, plus additional charges of kidnapping, robbery, rape, deviant sexual assault, and criminal conspiracy. Each defendant tried to blame the other for the most, for the most acts. Norris now claimed that he had been high on drugs most of the time, unable to resist Bittaker. But the audio tapes tapes told a different story, revealing Norris as a full participant. Norris realized he would have to do more to avoid the death penalty. In February 1980, Norris led Detective Benham, Steve Kay, and members of the Sarah Madras search and rescue team on a tour of the San Gabriel murder sites. They found Lee Lamp and Jackie Gillum with Bittaker's ice pick still buried in Gillum's ear. But no trace was found of Cindy Schaefer or Andrea Hall. They were lost forever. But Norris had delivered enough evidence to clinch his plea bargain. Reluctantly, Steve Kaye agreed to waive the penalty, the death penalty, and grant a life sentence with parole eligibility in return for Norris' testimony against Medica. Before a defendant is formally pr- sentenced, California requires a report and a sentence recommendation from a parole officer. Norris's jail inquisitors noted Roy's casual, unconcerned manner as he discussed the five murders without regret. In the officer's opinion, Norris appealed compulsive, in his in, in his need and desire to inflict pain and torture upon women, the defendant himself acknowledged that in the commission of rape upon a woman, it is not the sex that is important, but the domination of the woman. And considered in considering the defendant's total lack of remorse about the plight of the victims, he can realistically be regarded as the an extreme sociopath. <coughs> whose depraved, grotesque pattern of behavior is beyond rehabilitation. The magnitude and the enormity of the defendant's heinous, nightmarish criminal behavior is beyond the comprehensive comprehension of this probation officer. Now, Steve K. was committed to seeking the death penalty for Lawrence Bitteker. In an unwitting tribute to Bitteker's jailhouse ambition, Kay declared that, for sheer brutality, the crimes of Charles Manson's cult, cultists didn't come close to Bitteker's rampage. Despite his experience in prosecuting rapists, murderers, and every other kind of felon, Kay twice broke down weeping during Bitteker's three-week trial. For this part, the defendants seemed to enjoy the proceedings. Bitteker had prepared for trial by writing his memoirs, fitting title, The Last Ride. Through warned repeated, re- repeatedly by his attorney, Bittaker insisted on finishing the manuscript, apparently convinced that jurors would believe his assertion that Norris masterminded the operation. The gamble failed, however, and on February 17, 1981, Bittaker was found guilty on five counts murder counts, and 21 other related felonies. California, like all the other states, holds its criminal trials in stages. The first determines guilt or innocence. The second, if a defendant is convicted, determines um, punishment. To support a death sentence, though, California prosecutors must demonstrate special circumstances, such as slaying deemed Especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, manifesting ex- <laughs> exceptional depravity. Bidiker's personal audio tapes were played for the jury while promptly <coughs> recommended death. Um, as with Norris, another probation reported, report was generated. Bidiker's examiner wrote that during the years this officer had been submitting evaluations to the court. He has had occasion to interview many individuals convicted of brutal crimes, but none to the extent of the ones for which this defendant had been convicted. During the interviews with him, although verbalizing some feeling for the the teenage deaths that he had caused, there is no outward expression or emotion displayed. This, his total attitude was almost as if he had been able to divorce himself from the emotions felt by the major portion of society. Well, the judge did agree. And Bitteker was sentenced to death on March 24, 1981. And he's actually been in prison ever since. He never was actually dead. That's
0: a lot of money.
1: I know it is. Spent on death row. (laughs) Yep, sure is. But that's my long case. That was pretty long. Well, yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, um.
0: Interesting, but long.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, that was, um, interesting. little long. Well, anyways. I've got a short one. Uh, well. Yes. Okay. I <laughs> yes, don't. you do. Yes, you do. I do It's don't. fine.
1: You just came out. It's all right. Though. Hey, it's the motion of the ocean. <laughs> it really is, though. But anyways. All right. You want so, to get into yours?
0: Yes. I just thought it would be really neat this time, not only to stay in California, but to do something. A person with my first name. Stanley. Stanley Dean Baker. Here we go. You ready? All right. At 3 o'clock on the afternoon of Saturday, July 11th, 1970, a man out fishing on the banks of the Yellowstone River in Montana snagged a human body at the end of his line. He drove in shock to the nearest ranch to telephone the police and Deputy Bigelow, who was stationed—no, for real, that was his (laughs) name— Deuce Bigelow, Mel. (laughs) Okay, Chiglo. Stationed at the entrance to Yellowstone National Park responded to the call. With the aid of some local men, the deputy waded into the turbulent river and dragged the body to shore. Although accustomed to routine drowning cases, Bigelow knew immediately that this was murder. Murder. Uh. The head was missing. Oh, no. Maybe it was uncircumcised.
1: Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. What's the head at? Oh, I don't know.
0: (laughs) Bigelow called Sheriff Don Guattoni, who drove Coroner Davis to the scene. All three men crouched over the body, which was clad only in shorts. It was that of a male, apart from the missing head, the arms had also been severed at the shoulders, and the legs were chopped off at the knees. Hmm. The abdomen and chest were covered with stab wounds with a particularly large ugly hole in the chest. Okay. The coroner looked shocked when he concluded his examination. Quote, I never saw anything like it, he said grimly. The poor fellow has been stabbed about 25 times, and I figure he's been in the water about a day. <laughs> he was a young fella, probably in his early 20s. There's one other thing. The heart is missing. I said heart, not fart. <laughs> the chest has been cut open and the heart's removed, unquote. For the sheriff, it was a major headache. All normal means of identifying the body, the head and hands, have been deliberately removed. But why the gratuitous butchery of the rest of the body? Mm -hmm. Why cut off the legs? Why remove the heart?
1: Good question.
0: The only thing it suggested was that it was some sort form of a cult murderer. There had been a rash of them recently, all connected with secret groups of devil worshippers. The Sharon Tate case had grabbed the headlines, but similar bizarre killings were going on all over the USA, or so they thought, but they were kind of wrong a lot of it, but whatever. The torso was taken by ambulance to the morgue in Livingston for a proper autopsy to be carried out while police teletyped details of the victim to Wyoming and other neighboring states. It was impossible to tell where the body had been dumped in the river, and the Yellowstone passed through Wyoming before entering Montana and the National Park. Although police searched the river and its banks for many miles, no traces of the missing limbs were found. The results of the autopsy indicated that the victim had been stabbed 27 times with a sharp-pointed blade of at least 5 inches in length. The removal of the head and limbs had been crudely performed, possibly with the knife used to inflict the stab wounds. The victim was in his early 20s and had been dead for 24 hours when found. Police had to wait until someone was reported missing. On the Monday morning... A teletype message came chattering into the sheriff's office in Livingston concerning a missing person who resembled the description of the torso. James Michael Schlosser, aged 22, had been reported missing from the town of Roundup, 100 miles away that same morning. He had set out on the Friday to drive to Yellowstone Park in his Opel Cadet sports car but had not turned up for work on the Monday. When his office colleagues got in touch with his landlady, they discovered that the popular young social worker had not returned home. Schlosser was described as being six feet tall and weighing 200 pounds. The age, height, and weight fitted the torso. Sheriff Gwitwoni put out an alert for sightings of his Opal Cadet car, which might have been dumped in the area. It was nineteen it was a nineteen sixty nine vehicle, yellow with black racing stripes. Well guess what? An hour later, that same car was in a collision with a pickup truck on a dirt road in Monterey County, California, just a few miles from the Pacific Ocean. The car had been traveling at speed on the wrong side of the Durham Road. The truck suffered only a dented bumper because it was metal, but the car was a write-off. It was total. The driver of the truck was a businessman from Detroit on holiday. He got out of his truck and approached the car from which two large young men were emerging. Both men were typical California hippies with long hair and beards. One was blonde, the other dark. The blonde man was about six feet tall very powerfully built. With shoulder-length golden hair, he wore a leather waistcoat and bell-bottom trousers. Groovy, baby. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Topped with an army fatigue jacket. His, comparison, his, I mean, his companion wore cowboy boots and a green army field jacket. The businessman might have expected trouble, but the hippies were friendly. The businessman wanted to exchange driver's licenses, but neither had one. So he took the registration number of their vehicle and suggested he should drive them both to the nearest telephone so the police could be notified of the accident. Both hippies shrugged and got into his truck. But when he drove into a service station in the town of Lucia, both men got out and ran away into the nearby woods. The businessman phoned the police and told them about the incident, giving the registration number of the other vehicle. It was that of the car belonging to the missing Slosser, And the California Highway Patrol was alerted to keep an eye out for two, quote, hippies, unquote, wanted in connection with a homicide. Patrolman Randy Newton was out cruising the Pacific Coast Highway when he got the call over his radio and he turned off into a dirt side road, figuring that the two fugitive hippies could not have got far. He came upon the suspects walking along the road just two miles out of Lucia. I think they were listening to John Denver's Country Roads Take Me Home. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to hitch a lift, the two men had no identification, but readily admitted having been the two men in the Opal Cadet involved in the accident. Newton arrested both men and radioed for assistance. When fellow officers arrived, the two suspects were handcuffed and advised of their rights. But the blonde man seemed anxious to talk, positively eager even. Identifying himself as Stanley Dean Baker, age 23, and his companion as Harry Allen Stroop, age 20. Baker said they were both from Sheridan, Wyoming, and had been traveling together since June 5th, hitching lifts when they could. The prisoners were searched, and in Baker's pockets, police found small links of bone. Officer Newton studied them curiously and asked Baker what they were. Baker blurted
1: out, They're my toothpicks.
0: They ain't chicken bones. They're human fingers. Then he added, memorably and typically American, I have a problem. I'm a cannibal. Both men were taken to the police station in Monterey. Baker continuing to talk in the patrol car about his compulsion to eat human flesh. He claimed to have developed a taste for it after having electric shock treatment for a nervous disorder when he was 17 and referred to himself as Jesus. As the police station detective Dempsey Biley took over the questioning, Baker almost boasted of how he had killed the owner of the Opal Cadet, saying Stroop had not been with him at the time. He and Stroop had split up when they reached Big Timber, a few miles from Livingston, because Baker had managed to hitch a ride with James Slusher. When Slosser had said he was going to the Yellowstone Park for the weekend, Baker had asked to go along, and the two men had set up camp for the night close to Yellowstone River. In the middle of the night, Baker had crept over to his sleeping companion and shot him twice in the head with a twenty-two pistol he habitually carried. Then he cut up the body into only six parts, removing the head, arms, legs. When asked what he had done with the dead man's heart, Baker replied... He ate it. I ate it. Oh, my God. Raw. Wow. He He explained that he had cut off the dead man's fingers to have something to nibble on. Wow. And dumped the remainder of the body in the river along with the pistol before driving off in the victim's car. Later, he had met up with Harry Stroop along the road and offered him a lift. He insisted that Stroop had not been involved in the murder. Both men were searched thoroughly, and among Baker's possessions was a recipe for LSD and a paperback book called The Satanic Bible, which was a handbook of devil worship with instructions on how to conduct a black mass. Baker described the location of the camp where he had killed Slosser. And when police officers located it and searched it, they found evidence that murder had indeed taken place at that spot. The earth was splattered with dried blood and a blood-stained hunting knife was found. There was also the usual debris which accompanies any such murder, you know, like human bone fragments, teeth, skin, and severed human ear. The pair were taken before a judge in California and waived extradition. Subsequently, They were flown back to Montana, where they were arranged before District Judge Jack Shamstrong on 27th of July. The pair were remanded in Park County Jail, but on August 4th, Judge Shamstrong approved a motion that Baker be sent to Warm Springs State Hospital for psychiatric evaluation. Harry Stroop had remained silent throughout, apparently guilty of nothing more than having befriended a homicidal, cannibalistic, maniac, and devil worshiper. Those short lengths of bone found on Baker were sent to a pathologist for examination and they proved to be bones from a human right index finger. Mm. Some people like pork skin, some people like human bones. Mm -hmm. No motive for the crime was claimed by the prosecution, apart from the cannibal aspect, the lust, the lust for human flesh. But as we have seen from an examination of man-eating tribes in New Guinea and elsewhere, the eating of a slain foe symbolizes total conquest and total contempt for the victim, who is digested and then excreted through the butthole. (laughs) okay. It may be that Baker, the non-conforming hippie with no job, viewed the young Schlosser, a college graduate with a sports car, horned-rimmed glasses and expensive camping equipment as a respectable square who had prospered within the system, a symbol of everything he could not be, and a mirror to his own failure. In that case, envy would be the motive. A have-not, who saw himself as a social reject, lashing out violently at a respectable member of society. With the same blind ferocity as a snake, a sneaky snake, striking at a stick.
1: I'm going to slither in your garden.
0: Now, just to let you know... I don't understand this, however. He was sentenced to life in prison in Montana in 1970. Yeah. However, he was released in 1985. So, go figure. Good luck. And goodbye. Because <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> that is my story. The wonderful Stanley Dean Baker.
1: Yep. Is that all you got for that's us? That's what I got
0: for you. All right. Like I said, it's that motion of that ocean. Exactly. Y'all remember that? You take it to your grave. Motion of the ocean, not the size of the.
1: That's right, tide. baby.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't. Anyway,
1: <laughs>
0: um, rate, review, love us, like us. Not see you next big. week. As always, I have been staying.
1: And I'm always Drew. And this has been bad in the
0: Boondocks,
1: baby. All right. See ya. See ya.